So I've been having lots of thoughts about my talk about thoughts. <laughs> and looking at my, the, the length of my talk, way too many thoughts about thoughts. So we'll see how much of this I get through. So did anybody notice any thinking in their meditation? <laughs> Just a little, no. <laughs> I was asleep the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Did you pay attention to what you were thinking about? Let's do a survey. How many people would say that their thoughts gravitated more to the past? Remembering, reminiscing, regretting, you know, cringing. Um, and how many people would say their thoughts went more, most to the future? Hands up. Oh, there's a room full of planners. <laughs> yeah, all right. How about the present? Who was thinking about the present? Judging, commenting, and uh, evaluating, and all that. Yeah, okay. So, it's just interesting to see. Probably like three quarters of the room were, were somewhere in the, coffee, in the tea break, or in going home, or in your next vacation, or your next meditation. You know, we often think a lot about our next meditation. When I get home in the morning, you know, I'll do that practice, I'll do this again, it's really great, you know, and then I'll sit like this and, you know, like, shut up. <laughs> Just sit. <laughs> Who are you anyway? <laughs> you know, I was teaching this retreat with a friend of mine, he said, you know, it's like having this, like, this roommate just follows you around. And it's really obnoxious, loud, talkative roommate. And then a couple of days into retreat, I said, you know, it's more like a dorm. It's like a dorm full of roommates. Like it's a whole like, you know, college dorm of people yakking and talking and commenting and evaluating and all of that. So, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's good to reflect on our thinking process, you know, because it's the thing that, certainly in meditation, is probably the most common hindrance, right? The most common thing that, that seemingly uh, is an obstacle that seems to pull us away from the simple, or the simple task of being present, right? The simple task of, you know, you do, you follow, you, you have a meditation instruction, right? You follow your breath or you pay attention to your body sensations or, your, or sounds or whatever your focus, you know, loving kindness or visualization or mantra, it doesn't matter what the, the focus is, but the, what interrupts that is mostly a habit of thinking, which um, is pretty ubiquitous. Um, you know, if you're a human, that's what you're doing. And we think the research, um, this is the kind of wide varying views on the number of thoughts, but somewhere between 15 and 55,000 thoughts a day. There's a lot of thoughts. No wonder you're tired at the end of the day. You know? And most of them, so according to a Stanford research, is that we 90% we thought yesterday. So not only are they tedious, but they're repeats. You know? Like really old repeats that we keep watching. Ooh, let's think about my vacation. Ooh, you haven't done that one before. Let's think about my boss. Ooh, you haven't done that one before. Not. So... Um, Buddha Dasa had a when he was when he asked was asked about what did he think about the world and you know, modern society and life. He said three words: lost in thought. Lost in thought. We are lost in thought. 
not so much aware of our thoughts because we just awareness and thinking is so close that we just think without much awareness of it. We just spend our time daydreaming, fantasizing, planning for the future that never actually arrives. How much of that planning that you've done really actually was useful? I mean, obviously we have to plan, you know, carpooling and booking air flight tickets and events and grocery lists and things. But how much more of the extra spinning and ruminating and, you know, do we do? You know, we sometimes will plan, well, after, the, after he's finished talking, I'll get up and I'll get my bag and I'll go outside and I'll say goodbye to so-and-so and I'll look at that notice and I'll walk to the car and we visualize the whole thing as if it's going to happen like that. It never does, right? Reality is far too interesting to be able to plan it out. So, um, as my friend Wes Niska says, we've lost the operating instructions and more, more importantly, we've lost the off switch. Mark Twain says, life does not consist mainly or even largely of facts and happenings. It consists mainly of the storm of thoughts that is forever flowing through one's head. We think we live in the world of reality, but actually we live in in our perceptions and our views and our ideas and thoughts about each other and about the world and about society and about politics and about spirit rock and about each other here in the room and how many views have you had about how many thoughts have you had about other people here and views and opinions and ideas and judgments and and fantasies and all kinds of things right probably a lot already which is fine it's what it's what we do as human beings but as with mindfulness you know in this practice we're learning how to both be present to what's happening and then really most importantly understand is it serving You know, as the Buddha would often say, to what end? To what end is all this thinking? To what end is all this judging? To what end is all this rumination? So you might maybe maybe ask that question in the middle of meditation when you find you've gone on one of those thought trains about who knows what, the election coming up. You know, the climate march on Sunday, which is fabulous. I heard there was 300,000 people there, um, contrary to media reports. And um, I just lost my train of thought about the piece, (laughs) about my friends who are on the climate march train. I had my own train about that. so interesting research, I've quoted this before, and I'm sure many of you have heard this, that um, when Harvard did a study uh, tracking how, many, how much people were present, they, um, had, they pinged people during the day on their phones and asked them three questions. What are you doing? Are you present? How do you feel? And so they were able to gather, you know, approximate how often people were present through the day based on the, you know, the times that they were asked. And guess how often people were present in a day? None. None. (laughs) This is confession time. I hear the percentages. People think they're actually really present. So the data was 46.9%. They're spaced out. We're spaced out. We're thinking about something else other than being present to what's actually happening. And if you sleep eight hours and you're you're spaced out, the the other 50% are waking hours, you know, life 
no wonder life feels like it's going fast, right? Because we're not present for it. So, um, you know, if, this, if all this thinking got us some, I mean, of course, I, I, I want to keep caveating that, you know, our thinking process is an amazing process of evolution, you know, and we think and we strategize based on these, you know, primary impulses. And I'm going to talk about the, the impulses that create thought, you know, what, what, what spawns these thought. But really, so much of our thinking is the brain making meaning of our experience, which is how we survived, and also anticipating threat and fears and learning to um, orient towards that which sustains life. And that's the base building block for, the, for our neocortex. But it's sort of gotten a little out of hand, as that research uh, points to. So, um, you know, from a, from, a, from a meditation perspective, from a Dharma perspective, it's, it's, uh, we're really asked to step back and say, well, what, what's happening in our experience? What's your relationship to this experience called thinking, called planning, called being lost in thought? Right? And how do we utilize that for our own well-being and the well-being of others? And how do we find ways to disentangle from the tangle when we get caught up in, in thinking patterns that aren't serving us? A friend of mine I was teaching with uh, Spring Washington once said, if you pay attention to your experience, reality is almost always kinder than your thoughts. Reality is almost always kinder than your thoughts. You know, the Twain line, Mark Twain line, the worst things in my life never actually happened. Mm-hmm. Right? We spend most, a lot of our time fearing and worrying and catastrophizing. What if this doesn't happen? What if I lose my job? What if my partner walks out? What if the economy tumbles again? What? Right? Complete, complete misery, all that thinking. So we want to understand this process so we can utilize it, so we can optimize our, our, our well-being and, and our functioning and let go of that which is not so useful. You know, one of the things I've appreciated about this practice, and I've been doing this practice for 30 years, is that um, uh, I have a lot more freedom in relationship to my thoughts, and there's a lot more space in relationship to my thoughts. So um, I don't believe what my mind tells me anymore. I don't believe my point of view is right. It's a point of view, and everybody has a point of view. And um, I don't believe what it tells me about myself, because mostly it's kind of, didn't do that well, should have done that, why didn't you think of that? And I ask it to go bother somebody else. Thank you very much for your point of view. It's very interesting. Have a nice day. Um, I'm busy now. Can I get back to my life? So, um, and also having seen that, the, you know, as brilliant and as amazing as our, as our minds and our thoughts can be, they also, they don't actually, they're not really where the, the, the kind of peace and well-being that we're looking for reside. Right? If you think about the times, the moments, the experiences where you felt profoundly at peace or at ease or a sense of well-being, right? it wasn't when you were busy, lost in thought. 
There's those quieter moments when you're enjoying the sunset, when you're looking into your child's eyes, when you're listening to a beautiful piece of music, when you're just sitting quietly minding your own business. When, that, when we're not so caught up in that maelstrom of thinking. And so practice really supports that, that unfolding, which is different than saying you shouldn't be thinking in meditation or your meditation be, should be thought-free, which is an incredibly common misconception. Right? How many of you had the, thought, had the notion that you, that you, should, you thought you couldn't meditate because you think too much or you are bad at meditation because you're thinking? Right? Probably most of you, right? Because the, 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 there's a, a misconception that meditation is about this sort of blissful state of not thinking. Thinking's gonna happen, just as our ears are gonna hear and our eyes are gonna see, thoughts are gonna happen, but we can have a clearer, wiser, less entangled relationship with it, with our roommate. So the Buddha was a bit like a scientist of the mind and he had a particular um, observation about one aspect of the thinking process that I want to talk about. And he put it this way, he said, whatever one feels, one perceives. Whatever one feels, one perceives. Whatever one perceives, one thinks and proliferates about. So based on, our, based on our senses, our hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, our basic experience, we have sensations, we have experience that we think and proliferate about. This is what he calls this process of papancha, right, where we, we think ad nauseum about experience rather than just staying here in the moment. So maybe you're sitting in meditation and you're excited, I have spirit rock, right, and I just be with my breath and just relax and and you notice your breath is a little tight, a little tense, and a little, maybe a little tightness in your solar plexus or your diaphragm, and you're just noticing the tightness, and, and then the thought comes, oh, I wonder why it's tight. Yeah, it's really tight. God, I'm, I'm kind of always a little tight. You know, why am I so uptight? You know, I mean, I can't even breathe. Like, what's up with the breathing? Like, I mean, I go to yoga, and you know, I just, I can never do this thing right. I hate this, I just hate meditation. I hate myself. <laughs> And we've gone from a little sensation of tightness to feeling despair and hopelessness, right? But that could be any other example and you could get there, you know? Or it could be the opposite, like, you know, you sit in meditation and for some miracle, right, everything's really quiet and your mind's really focused and you're like, wow, this is pretty good. Focus, concentration, relaxation, pretty blissful. I'm pretty good at this, yeah. I'm actually really good at this. I think I finally licked this thing. God, one, I don't have to come to these classes anymore, and two, I should start teaching this shit. I'm so good. I could set up my own, you know, spirit rock, you know. (laughs) And we've gone, you know, we're like, you know, we're, you know, we're holding TV shows, and, you know, we've got our own meditation app, you know, and... And then we realize we've just been thinking for 20 minutes in the meditation. <laughs> what started off quite well was actually just a bunch of thoughts, which is what we normally do. So, um, you know, really want to again um, preface all of this with 
um, whenever we're pointing to some aspect of experience, to um, to in, to look and investigate, not with judgment, but with understanding, right? With curiosity. Why 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 is this and how is this? How has this come to be? And how can I work with this skillfully? Not judge it, not hate it, not blame myself, but just oh, right. This is a this is the way the brain makes sense of my experience. Tries to organize, tries to understand, and um, and and the net result of that is a lot of thinking. So as as uh, Again, as my friend Wes Niska says, it's not your fault. You know, it's not your fault that the brain is thinking. Right? It just thinks. Right? Our, our work with awareness is to come into wise relationship with it, whatever that is for each of us. So I was teaching, a, I, wasn't teaching I was sitting a retreat, my own retreat up in the hills, up in, up in, um, in Woodacre, up in a friend's house years and years ago. And I'd just come into the country, it was 1993 or 94, and uh, I, was, I had a temporary green card, and I was doing this retreat, and, um, and I, was, I looked out the window one morning, this person drove up, and the window, kitchen window faces the road, and they, they wound down their window, and they took a photo of me in the house. I said, that's weird. And then they went round the circle, this is a, a little cul-de-sac, and I went to the other side of the house to see what, to check the car out, and they stopped, and they took a photo of me from that side of the house. And then they drove off without any acknowledgement and this is a silent retreat and I was you know, new in the country and I got really paranoid. It's like, oh, the FBI's come checking me out. <laughs> you know, I had this whole drama about, oh, am I, what, am, I, am I legal? Am I doing something wrong? Did I, am I not supposed to meditate before I get my green card? I don't know. What's the, you know. And so a lot of that retreat was like spinning until I suddenly, it's like, Mark, like, why you, th- who knows what this, but maybe they liked the architecture of the house. Maybe they were photographing the tree. Who knows what they were doing? I never found out what they were doing. Um, <laughs> but I did know that all that thinking and worrying and planning and p- speculating was a complete waste of time. <laughs> so, um, as I often quote this line from Viktor Frankl, because I think it's such a wonderful way of grokking um, one aspect of this practice, which is the, the, the freedom and the spaciousness in response to our experience. So he says, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our power and freedom to choose our response. In that response lies our growth and happiness. Between stimulus and response, seeing a photo- photographer, you know, right? or our breath being tight, or being hungry, okay? between stimulus and response, there's a space, and that space lies our power and freedom to choose our response. We could, if we're not choosing, we're likely just to proliferate with thinking. With the space, there's choice, and with that choice brings, hopefully, wise reflection and wise action. Like, oh, I should just let that thought go, and who knows what they, why they were photographing, and may they have a nice day. And hopefully I won't be on Facebook. Facebook wasn't around then, so that wasn't too important. So um, there are four main um, areas that this, this, this notion of papancha, P-A-P-A-N-C-A, which means proliferation of mind, mental proliferation, um, where they, it, it um, is more likely to arise. But of course there's innumerable areas really, but the four key areas that I want to point out 
um, that the Buddha referred to. And one was um, uh, the proliferation that arises around desire. Right? So all of you planners, all of you planners, right? Probably a lot of the planning, right, is coming from desire, right? Wanting certain things, hoping and planning and expecting, you know, pleasurable things and, you know, whatever it is, you know, whether it's your dinner at night or your cappuccino or your lovemaking or your vacation, or, right? We spend a lot of time proliferating about things we want because it's pleasurable, right? We get a little, we get a little dopamine and each time we think about our vacation next August <laughs> or whenever, right? So we keep doing it because it's pleasurable, sort of pleasurable. So I, what I forgot to tell you about that study, the, Re- the Harvard uh, Medical School study, is that so we're 46.9% not present to our experience. And those people who were not present, e- e- so those people who were present, even when the activity was mundane, like sweeping, cleaning, washing, bathing, cooking, if they were present to it, they felt much happier than if they were not present and actually thinking or spacing or fantasizing. So the, 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 I, the thinking, I think our rationale is, well, if, I, if this is boring, like if this drives boring, and I just start thinking and you know, fantasizing, that'll make me happier. Well, the data is actually showing something else. So um, just to think about where, you know, where does your mental proliferation go around this idea of, uh, of desire, what, what the Buddha called tanha, thirst, right? This hunger for experience. We're sitting in meditation, kind of boring, you know, yeah, the breath, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> breathing in, breathing out, and why they just focus, why they, it's just such, such a drag, you know. God, I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> I think I'll go for that pizza place in Fairfax on the way home. They do really good pepperoni pizza, man. I just love that pepperoni. Not as good as Italy, though. You know, when I went to Rome, they had fantastic pizza. You know, know, maybe at Christmas I could go to Italy and just, you know, it's quiet in Florence, you know, and good pizza in northern Italy, and and we've gone, right? We're planning our vacation. Ten minutes later, oh, right, Mark says something in the meditation. Oh, right, meditation, spirit rock, right. Okay, start again. Right? Or fantasies, our sexual fantasies, our romantic fantasies, right? We call them vipassana romances, right? You see someone in a class or a course, and your shoes happen to, you know, line up next to each other, and you think it's a sign, you know, and you end up in the cookie line, and you, you like the same cookie. You know it's meant to be, right? You know the gluten-free, you know, dairy-free, taste-free cookie is like, you know, we're like soulmates. And we have a whole, you know, you know, we get married, you know, we have kids <laughs> at the house and the country and, you know, and then, there and then we, five years later, it doesn't work out, we get divorced and, and the bell goes and it's like, oh, 20 minutes for that time, you know, it's what we do all the time. Or sometimes, often it's just idle, it's just meandering. Just wondering, you know, that we have those in the retreat up the hall, which we're going to be building in the same way as we are here down here. It's sort of interesting architecturally, lots of lines, lots of sort of wooden slats, and 
and we had, a, I remember having an architect in the, in, on one of the retreats, and he spent his whole retreat just thinking about how did they get the structural load bearing to be in that configuration rather than this, and you know. Um, I sometimes find myself counting the tiles on the roof. You know, like, why am I counting the tiles on the roof? That is completely unsatisfying, as is much of our thinking. So, um, one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons is a couple of uh, goldfish swimming in the sea, or the lake, wherever goldfish swim in the wild, <laughs> if they ever do swim in the wild. I've never seen them in the wild, but I'm sure they did come from somewhere. somewhere. And one says to the other, you know, what do you want out of life? What, what are you hoping for? You know, what's your dreams? And the other one says, you know, I want the little glass bowl <laughs> and the colored gravel and the little castle with the plastic plant. You know, that's like our proliferation, right? Here we are in, in paradise in this beautiful place called Earth and we spend most of our time lost in the tumble dryer of our thoughts, thinking that somehow that will make us happy. We think we can think our way to enlightenment. Doesn't work. We think we can think our way to happiness. Doesn't work. Has thinking ever really made you happier? Like really happier? Lasting happier? Has its place and its value, for sure. So the second kind of proliferation is based on unpleasant experience. So the first was based on a pleasurable thought or idea or experience. The second is unpleasant, and we have a lot of proliferation about that which we don't like. So, um, you know, it could be as simple as, um, you know, you're sitting in in meditation wherever, and uh, you have some physical pain. You know, your knee starts twinging, maybe a little back injury comes, you start feeling it, your neck is aching. And from the perspective of mindfulness, it's just a little sensation, just a little itching, gnawing, you know, burning, stabbing, piercing, those nice, pleasant (laughs) sensations that happen when you sit long enough. And, um, but we don't stop there. We start, oh, why is that? What is that? Is that my, is that C3 or C4? Is that, you know, I thought the surgeon resolved that. You know, he said I wouldn't feel any more pain. You know, I'm switching out of Kaiser. I'm sick of Kaiser. You know, <laughs> their medical care, you know, I'm paying so much now. And, you know, this Obamacare, I don't know what that means, but, you know, and we've got right? it's proliferation based because it's hard to be with unpleasant experience, uncomfortable, difficult, painful experience. So what we'd rather do is think because we can, we can sort of feel like we can remove ourselves, right? And we do that all the time because life is full of a lot of stuff that's unpleasant and difficult and tedious and painful and boring. So we check out, thinking that's going to make us, that's going to be a resolution. It's not a resolution, it's a bypass, it's an avoidance, it's a postponement, and it doesn't actually give us, build the resilience and the resourcefulness that comes from just actually sitting in the middle of whatever experience is here. So another way this, this manifests is you find yourself having an argument in meditation. You're arguing with your boss or your partner, you know, or your family or your neighbor, or, and you're going over that argument. They said this, and you know, I told them not to put the trash cans out, and they always do, and they do. And of course, we're always right, right? You never notice who the, you know, the protagonists, and who's, who's the one who's 
as the higher moral ground and who and who the central casting character is right it's all about me it's my life There's a great line from a uh, Korean Zen teacher from way back when, called Bankai. He said, don't side with yourself. Don't side with yourself. Imagine what it's like when you catch yourself in the middle of that, he said that, and she said that. Wait till I get my two cents in. And reflect on that phrase, don't side with yourself. As in, what's it like to step out of your own position and stop trying to defend and prop and and defend and... I remember I was on a retreat in um, uh, Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast, and it was a long retreat. And I had these, um, it happened for a couple of, I did these long three-month retreats, um, and a few in a row, and in the second one particularly, I got these um, weird sensations in my sit bones where I couldn't sit without feeling pain, which was kind of a pain since I was on a meditation retreat where all you're doing is sitting on your ass all day. So, so I would sort of like, I'd sort of be sitting like this and something like that and sort of doing everything I could to not feel that nerve pain in my sit bones. And I would, I spent most of meditation designing a chair that suspended from the <laughs> ceiling that I could put under my legs and under my arms that would not require contact with my tush. And um, did I design it? No. Did I spend a lot of time thinking about it? Yes. Was it a waste of time? Probably. <clears throat> so another interesting story, I was working, um, uh, is this Prapancha? I think this is Prapancha. Yeah, it is Prapancha. Yeah, so um, I was working in, a, in this uh, hedge fund. I was working, I was con- doing some mindfulness consulting with this, some folks in a hedge fund. And this trader had made a particularly successful trade that day. This was a pre, pre-crash, so it was the kind of crazy heyday. And um, he'd made 50 million that day for the company in this particular trade. And uh, it had been a long build-up. It wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just a day, but... And I was seeing him in the afternoon. There was a bit of a buzz in the office, you know, as you can imagine. Not every day you make 50 million, you know. Um, and he was really stressed and looked really worried and anxious. And I was like, and it's just like, it just doesn't compute. This man's had an incredibly successful day in probably the best day of trading in his life. And he looked stressed. And he, I noticed he was caught in a lot of papancha, this prolifer- negative proliferation based on a negative experience, which is he thought that he could have done better. He thought he could have held for a few more hours and made a few more million. That's the power of perpetua. Based on unpleasant experience, we proliferate and torture ourselves. So the coulda, woulda, shoulda mind is proliferation, perpetua. How many times do you think you could have done better? You should have made a different decision. If only you had fill in the blank. This is one of my stickiest mindsets. I get caught in coulda, woulda, shoulda about certain things. And it's complete misery <laughs> and has no value. We think, oh, well, if I do it, if I, if I ram it home enough, I could have, would have, should have, the next time I won't make the mistake. doesn't work. That's not how we learn. That's just called judging ourselves and beating ourselves up and feeling like crap. 
So, um, but, but notice every time you're in that coulda, woulda, shoulda mind state. Oh, thinking. Oh, mental proliferation. Oh, based on what? Based on some unpleasant experience like pain, loss, regret, fear. And if we can switch from the thinking to the emotional layer, then we actually have a much more chance of resolving that, that experience. So I come from England, and my lovely parents are here visiting from England tonight. And um, one of the things that, that us English people like to proliferate a lot about is the weather in England, right? Because it's, you know, well, it's England, you know, it's cloudy, and I mean, we had a good summer this year, but, you know, it's, it's a lot to, you know, proliferate about. <laughs> but it's interesting... You know, it doesn't matter actually where you go, there's a lot of proliferating about the weather. It's cold, it's hot, so it's really hot now, it's foggy now. And um, again, it's interesting to notice what we do culturally or socially that actually feeds this proliferating tendency. So there's a story of a man, I don't know if this is, I think this is a true story. It was, so, so when we were teaching retreats, we get these notes from, from meditators who are taking the retreat. And when you're on retreat, you lose kind of sense of perspective, like because you're in this sort of bubble of microcosm and everything takes on a much more heightened importance. So the fact that your neighbor's breathing loudly, right, and you're sitting in silence for a week and they've got, they sound like they've got some really terrible bronchial condition <laughs> and instead of feeling compassion you want to kill them because it's just <laughs> driving you nuts because you really want to be peaceful but you just keep fixating on their breath right this is and this is an example of how we proliferate you know i i I'm not be happy until this person stops breathing which wouldn't be very nice for them <laughs> even though i could happily support in that um uh, this, we got this one note, and this uh, this is up in the northwest, where this retreat center um, is in some flight path to some airport. I think it's Seattle, and the the, the manager's got a note from this meditator and said, "Would you mind writing to United Airlines to see if they can reroute their flight path because it's really, really ruining the meditation retreat." This is proliferating mind. Right? We get you know, a little unpleasant experience, and then we're writing letters to Congress. You know, Planes shouldn't run between 7 and 8 a.m. in the morning when I'm meditating. You know. So as you can see, it's good to have a sense of humor about, about it. Right? I mean, it's good to have a sense of humor about ourselves, because we're kind of funny, don't you think? We're a little quirky. You know? And um, it's good to be light, because it's, kind of, it's actually sometimes very painful, this tendency, this proliferation. And particularly the next spawn, spawning ground for proliferation is, um, so the, the first was um, pleasant experience, the way we keep getting lost in planning, desire, and wanting, and fantasizing. Um, the second is uh, unpleasant experience, and we get caught in aversion, aversion and resistance and proliferating. Um, and again, as a caveat, this is not saying that, you know, 
there are innumerable things in the world that require action, social justice, uh, you know, ecological crises. We need to have a creative response to things. We need to use our, uh, the best of our minds to solve these issues. So it's not saying, well, we don't do, don't do anything, but we're looking at the, the, the somewhat um, redundant rumination that happens. So the third area that, that propels us to get lost in proliferation is uh, based on views, views and opinions. Uh, they're called ditties in Sanskrit. And um, again, it, again, with the arguments that you have in your head, with these imaginary people that you never actually have that argument with, really, but you spend a lot of time thinking about it, often it's about some view or opinion. Right? Some argument about how I'm right. Right? And they're wrong, and I'm going to tell them, I'm going to show them how they're wrong. Right? That's going to feel really good. So, um, and this is, I think, much more painful because it's closer to home, because it's often those views and opinions about ourselves and about our worth and about our identity, about who we are as a human being. And it's, you know, the 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 bigger process or the bigger awareness around this whole understanding of thoughts is that the more that we believe our thoughts, the more likely we're going to suffer. The more likely, the more we give thoughts authority, the more we think, think of them as ultimately true, we've got some challenges ahead. Because if you, if you take a look at your mind, it's full of all kinds of weird and wacky thoughts and ideas and views and opinions that aren't necessarily in alignment with reality. Like, if you, uh, you know, did a poll with the 10 people who are closest to you, and you describe exactly who you think you are, <coughs> and said, is this who I am? They were like, that's not who you are, because usually our, our, opinion, our view of ourselves is very distorted, and usually much more negative than actually reality is. So, um, so to think about your own views and opinions and where you spin and proliferate. Right? So if you, think about the, if you think about the world at large and how our, the, the micro views inside get magnified, right? our religious and spiritual views are often the place that we get most entrenched and have most in proliferation. We look at the, the, the warfare and the suffering that's happening uh, because of religious views right now and the jihads, and the terrorism, and the counterterrorism. And it's based a lot on views, whether it's around democracy, or religious freedom, um, bigotry, mostly. You know, there's a view that it's okay to kill people in the name of spirituality. Right? It's a completely distorted view. So uh, a good example of, of how we can get caught in view. So there's two, two Buddhist meditation masters um, come together in the, I guess this is the 70s. Uh, one is um, Kala Rinpoche, who's a great, great Tibetan teacher. And one was um, uh, Sangsanim, who was a wonderful Zen teacher. Both, you know, masters of their lineages and, you know, had thousands and th tens of thousands of students in the West. And the students were really keen, you know, in, in the spirit of, you know, 
mutual understanding. They wanted their, their teachers to have a dialogue and to see what the common points of you know connection were and what they could learn. And, and um, this is a very formal traditional setting and these two masters are from you know, very traditional context. And so they were sitting across from each other in this sort of sort of meditation slash, I don't know, religious debate. But they're you know, mostly, mostly just in silence. And, um, and uh, Sangsanin pulls out an orange. And, and h- h- the main question he would ask his students to inquire into their experience was, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this life? What is this breath? What is this moment? What does mean? What is Buddha? What is awakening? What is this? So he pulls out the orange. And he says, what is this? Right? It's, like, it's like a spiritual combat. What is this? And Kala Rinpoche kind of looks at him like a little like, it's a bit weird question. And he, and he leans over to his interpreter and he says, don't they have oranges where he comes from? <laughs> <laughs> and they laugh a little bit. And that was the end of the debate. <laughs> Pretty much. So we have a lot of proliferation about about our our own spiritual life and practice, and about where we are in our journey. A lot of views and opinions. Where am I? You know, we you know, we're sitting in meditation, and we're just restless and distracted and bored, and we look around and we go, God, everyone's meditating like Buddhas. They must be almost enlightened by now. And I'm the only, you know, schlump in the room, just kind of picking my nose. And, you know, I've been, you know, and God, I should be further along than this right now, and this is terrible. And then the thought comes up I should be further along than I am. Isn't that like just a completely pointless, painful thought? I should be different than who I am. Well, great. That's a great thought, but (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) I am exactly where I am. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) I should be further along in my path. I hear this all the time. I should be further along in my meditation. I should be further along in my studies. I should be further along in my compassion. I should be further... You know, I should be a nicer person. Well, you are how you are. You know, practice is about meeting yourself where you are with loving kindness and presence and understanding. So I once, um, uh, yes, I, I was uh, living in the houseboats in Sausalito. And uh, this particular parking car park, parking lot, uh, flooded every full moon and new moon because it's slightly below the, below the water table. And uh, you're supposed to move your car out in the parking lot, otherwise it floods. And uh, I was sort of new on the boat. I didn't really get the rhythms. And so I wake up next morning, and my car's sitting in a couple of feet of water. And, um, and I was feeling sort of bad about that. But the car next to me was a brand new Mercedes, so I didn't <laughs> feel quite as bad um, or as stupid. Um, anyhow, so I, I, take, I take the car to my friend because I basically shot the transmission because I got seawater in the transmission. And I say to him, uh, I guess I'm just not paying attention. So 
I guess I'm just not paying enough attention to the material world. You know, I'm just too focused on the spiritual. I'm not really taking care of business and tracking the tides and moving my car. And he says, no, your car just broke down. I said, but there's something I'm not looking at. And he said, no, your transmission went out because of the flood. Like, stop making a story about it. So, of course, we have a lot of proliferation about everybody else, too. You know, Mostly our views and opinions are about other people, have you noticed? And we're sort of convinced that they're right. We're convinced that they're true. So one of my teachers used to say, don't let, don't let a single thought land anywhere. Don't let a single thought land anywhere, which means make your mind be, be light enough that these thoughts, these views, these proliferations aren't sticking. You notice them and they just kind of, you know, Teflon mind. So the last kind of um, proliferation is called manapapancha, which is proliferation about me, about the self, about identity, which is really what all of these are really sort of always constellating around anyway. Um, you know, the Lily Tomlin line, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. Uh-huh. You know, it's that, that kind of proliferation, you know. How come I ended up here with me? Um, so it's the way our mind, you know, it's the way our ego structure maintains this sort of identity about ourselves by continually talking about ourselves, continually thinking, reflecting, how, who am I and how do I look and what do I do and who am I and what's my meaning, what's my purpose? And, and we just get lost in this, this dance of self, this dance of me and mine. What am I going to do with my life? I was listening to a talk where the speaker was talking, give a sort of historical context for human development. And he said, you know, if you ask someone a couple of hundred years ago, you know, mostly we were sort of in, in agrarian society, maybe 300 years ago, you know, you, asked, you went up in a, into a field, you know, in Russia or in, in Peru, and you said to a person, you know, so, you know, what are you going to do with your life? You know, who are you going to be? When you, who do you really, you know, what do you, what do you want to do, you know, when you grow up? And they would look at you like, well, I'm farming. Like, that's what I do. Like, that's just what I do. So, what's the question? Right? But we have, you know, we are in a different era where, where there's a lot more freedom and choice and possibility. And, but what that does is it, it, it creates endless spinning and dramas of, me and my life, and what am I doing, and where am I going, and who am I, and which is all val- valuable reflection, and we spend our life proliferating about it. So I remember teaching a yoga retreat. Uh, so it was a yoga mindfulness teacher training retreat, and uh, this one person came in, and she said, "I'm just really, and I'm trying to meditate, but I'm so consumed." by, I, I keep having this fantasy that when I get home, I'm going to build this great yoga studio in my back garden, and I'm going to you know, build this center, and all these people are going to come. And, and there's just a lot of proliferation about who? About me. And maybe that will happen, maybe it's a fine thing to do, but the point is to see when that spinning is, is not helpful, not, not useful. Oh, and, and, and it happens in a more very ordinary way. So you go out the door, you go get a cup of tea, you go to the bathroom, 
and for whatever reason the person doesn't know that you're behind them and the door sort of slams in your face. And that could be just the door slamming in your face or it could be, God, I feel so unwelcome here. Like, you know, people are so rude here. You're supposed to be mindful and, and compassionate and they just let the door slam in your face and I don't think anybody likes me here. I, I, don't, I don't think I fit in here. I don't think this is my people. You know, like I just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to the yoga class. Screw this meditation stuff. You know? And we create this whole story and we do that all the time. You know, we personalize that which isn't personal. Someone cuts us off and we think, we take it as an affront to like our, our identity. And they're, they're, they're probably just on their cell phone, you know, happily texting. So, and of course, one of the most painful kind of uh, proliferation about ourselves is, is, uh, is our critic, which is why I'm teaching that day long on the critic, right? The, the judging, the belittling, someone called it, um, uh, what was the word? Uh, the, inner, the inner saboteur that sabotages your happiness, sabotages your plans, sabotages your well-being. Um, I call it the doom and gloom voice, you know, the, the killjoy, the, the misery, the, you know, just, it just seems designed to undermine our sense of well-being and value. Right? And if you listen to that voice and if you give it value, if you give it attention, you will suffer. So this is um, an old cartoon that I sometimes read from... Uh, cartoon strip called Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. And this is kind of an example of what we do with this kind of proliferation. It says, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them, like in a meditation class. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. That's, that's for you past-dwelling folks. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. So, um, disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And this woman's getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. And then she's thinking, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. So, um, you know, many ways to... Um, not feel so good. <laughs> and we do it ad nauseum, right? We think about those moments that we, we, we messed up and we forgot to call somebody on their birthday and, and you know, we sort of grind it down. You know, it just gets painful not. So from the perspective of practice, our job is simply to be aware and mindful of these different processes. To see the, how, one, when they're present or when they're absent, and to notice what, what the triggers are. Right? So next time you're feeling lonely, or lo- you know, to notice how your, your experience is colored by your internal feelings. So if you wake up feeling lonely and sad, you'll look at the world through those eyes and have proliferation based on that experience. If you wake up feeling happy and generous and joyful, you'll have proliferation you know, based on, isn't the world great and isn't it wonderful and isn't it delightful to be alive? Even though yesterday it was like, get me out of here, I'm done. So, um, so our practice is simply to be, to be, as I said, be the knowing, not the conditions that are known, which means we 
have enough space to see the various thoughts, feelings, proliferations, judgments, fantasies, um, and to see them for what they are, which they're just thoughts. They're just a bunch of thoughts that have a lot of potency if we give them it, but not if we don't. Not if we realize, oh, that's just a thought. That thought that I feel like I'm not enough, that's just a thought. It might be a view and a feeling too, but ultimately it comes from this view, manapapancha. So that's why we cultivate mindfulness, is we become more aware of this inner landscape so we can see it and not get so caught. So when my mind's like, because Mr. Mindfulness has lost his keys again <laughs> for the second time today, and his glasses for the fifth time today, and I know my judge's going to go, oh, Mr. Mindfulness, that's not very mindful. <laughs> I know, it's like, oh, it's just what my mind does. It's just, it's just the judging mind. It doesn't mean anything, really, unless I, get, unless I believe it. And then, of course, then I'm feeling miserable. So um, that's mostly what I wanted to say. Um, oh, a couple of poems. Um, so a couple of haikus. Uh, so one is from Ryokan, who is a beautiful um, Japanese Zen poet, as many of you know. And so he's a very, very simple hermit, lives in the woods, a teeny little cabin, has a few basic things like, you know, a, a pot to cook his rice on and some incense and, you know, a pillow for his bed and that's probably it. And he comes home from his pilgrimage one day and he's been burgled. And he writes a haiku about, about losing his very, very few possessions. And he says, The moon at the window the thief has left behind. The moon at the window, the thief has left behind. Right? Not, oh no, why me? Oh my God, I'm going to be destitute. How am I going to cook my rice? Where's my rice pot? I hate that person. I'm done with this from home at life. I'm going to get a job and get a real life. <laughs> no, it's the moon at the window, the thief has left behind. Right? There's a, there's a space and clarity in that. And then there's the most perhaps famous of haikus, that, that um, also point to this um, by Basho, wonderful poet. Um, so he's sitting by a pond uh, with frogs, and they're jumping in and out of the pond. And the poem goes like this. The old pond, frog leaps, splash. The old pond, frog leaps, splash. Right? Very simple, just as it is. Not, God, I wish this pond was a bit bigger. You know, I could swim in it if it was a bit bigger, you know. <laughs> I don't like those frogs. They're kind of like a bit creepy, actually, you know, and it's kind of a bit of a plop rather than a splash, you know. And, right? it's a, that, that would be proliferation, right? Just like when we listen to the sound of the crickets right now.
quiet night, people sitting, cricket singing. Very simple. But it could be, I don't know, it sounds like frogs to me. Oh, it sounds like, reminds me of when I was in Ibiza in Spain. Oh, and those crickets at night were so loud, so cool. God, I wish I was in Spain right now rather than sitting in Spirit Rock. <laughs> so, to close, um, this line from the Buddha, he said, um, it's actually a, a summary of this quote, but he says, he who has given up Papancha, this proliferation of mind, has found the, has found the bliss of nirvana, the supreme peace. So when we, so what he's pointing to, um, this, uh, the peace that comes when we can meet and allow experience to be as it is, right? So the, the, the rarity and the preciousness of being with somebody, meeting them as they are, without any story of proliferation or judgment about it, meeting ourselves as we are, without any of our stories or our narratives. Just, oh, it is how it is. So, um, in your week this week, you know, just notice the stories, the proliferating, the, 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 these trains of thought that take you away from just the actual, the quiet, pleasant simplicity of the moment. Right? How we overcomplicate our experience. Okay, nice to be with you. Thank you for your attention. Enjoy this beautiful evening, and please turn right as you leave Spare Rock. Even though you might proliferate about, why don't they let us turn left? I mean, it makes much. I'm going left. And another thing. I'm just kidding. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.